All right. Why don't you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, please. The message is entitled, The Priority of the Word. 1 Timothy 4, 13, Paul the Apostle commands Timothy as a young pastor, Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. Now, this is for every generation. How is it that we can be commanded in this aspect of intellectual understanding and responsibility? In the emergent church, the postmodern movement says that we cannot learn any objective truth from the Word of God. So we just dialogue. We don't fight about doctrine. What a contradiction. The priority of the Word of God was of the utmost importance for the late Pastor Chuck Smith, founder and leader of Calvary Chapel, as he modeled the teaching verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, from December of 1965 till the last sermon of September 20th or 29th of 2013. What an incredible guy. He did his last service with oxygen. Then he went home and died. He went home with the Lord four days afterwards. There's few men like Pastor Chuck Smith. I didn't worship him. He's a manager like me. But let me tell you, he put all of his followers to shame. He was an incredible, incredible man. But since uh, Chuck's death, his uh, son-in-law, Brian Broderson, pastor of Calvary Chapel now, is uh, taking Calvary Chapel in a different direction, saying some pretty weird things. He's going more emergent, and um, he, uh, he doesn't represent us. He doesn't speak for us. Every Calvary Chapel is independent. There was a time where I could tell you, you can go to any Calvary Chapel and you could be getting the Word of God. That's not the case today. So each of us are individual as uh, pastors, the churches. And um, we had Calvary Chapel pastors that believe in the priority of the Word of God, teaching through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And, um, and so we can declare before the congregation or before God that we are innocent of the blood of any man and that um, we have given to you the full counsel of God according to Acts 20, verse 26 and 27. That goes back to Ezekiel, the watchman. Pastors are here to warn and to instruct and to feed the people of God. I'm not here to have you hook up, to have a meat market here for dating or marriage. Uh, you're here to grow and to have God transform you so that you can arrange your life the way you should. And as God leads you to hook up with other people in terms of being good friends and being there for each other, that's what the church is about. Today, the church is a place of entertainment and a place of community and in terms of things apart from the Word of God. In fact, many people gather together, they, they don't even bring a Bible. If you don't bring a Bible, you're going to feel naked here because that's, that's all we do. We open the Bible. It's important. So the Word of God is the only thing that will transform and equip the people of God for the life of godliness. Nothing else will do. And so shepherds are to feed the flock of God, and they are warned over and over again through Scripture. Jeremiah 50, verse 6, Ezekiel 34, 4, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4, and so many others, that they are to feed and warn and to oversee the flock of God instead of fleecing it and just taking it off on, on courses and, 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 and roads that are not of the Lord. And so in view of that, we want to examine the priority of the Word of God from three perspectives. First, we'll look at God, how He commands the teaching and the learning of God's Word. Second, God communicates His authority by His Word. It is His authority. And thirdly, God cares that we know what is doctrine. By his word. That is the plumb line, as you know. So let's begin with the first point. God commands the teaching and the learning of God's word. In Deuteronomy, back in the Old Testament, chapter 6, verse 5 through 9, as you know, the second generation is the one that inherited the land. The first one accused God of bringing them out to kill them. So he says, because you've done that, you're going to run around for 40 years and your children are going to inherit it. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5 through 9, he, uh, there in, in verse um, 5 and 6 verse, we have the motivation uh, that stands behind 
um, all this is the love for God. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. God wants a relationship, not to put God's word in your brain so you can just give answer, but that it transforms you, it changes you from the inside out. That's what the word of God is for. I'm not here to tell you what you can do for God. I'm here to tell you what God has done for you and what else he wants to do for you. He wants to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Change you from the inside out. Make you to more like him and less like you. That's always good news. The responsibility of parents to teach their children is followed in verse 7. You shall teach them uh, diligently to your children and shall talk of them when they sit by the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. In other words, 24 hours a day. You're not just a Christian when you come to church for an hour. You're a Christian when you're in the parking lot, when you're at work, when you're at home, and, and, and your children should see that consistency. I commend you for coming today in the rain. I'm glad you're not fair weather Christians. You know what you, when you walked in with your kid today, your child said, my dad's a Christian. My dad and mom go to church no matter what. That is a priority for our life. You do more for your child doing that than ever before. Wow. In verse 8 9, the evidence of loving the word of God is, that it's, big, it's to be in our home and our lives completely. Listen, you shall bind them as a sign in your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes, those phylactery things that the Pharisees had with the parchments of Deuteronomy. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, meaning the little masusa, the little scrolls of the law. They walk in their house, they kiss it. In other words, could I... Could I find enough evidence if I walk in your house that I would know you're a Christian? Or would you have to tell me? Would I be able to walk in your bedroom, in your den, your garage, or wherever, and, and that I'd know, I would, I would say, this, this family's a Christian? Or, or is your house full of worldliness and very little Christian stuff? Okay, I'm not talking about being weird. I'm not talking about, you know, being, you know, radical in terms that you really are uh, turning people off. But is there enough evidence in your life to prove that you're a Christian? All of these are commands, by the way. You shall. They're not suggestions. In the next book, as they go in to take the promised land in Joshua 1.8, God told Joshua before entering to possess the land that he's to abide in the word, okay? So not only are you supposed to teach and learn it, but you're to abide in the word of God. Listen to Joshua 1.8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night, and that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So here, the, the, the book was not to depart from his mouth. In other words, whatever people ask you about God or about sin or about anything else, you should be able to give them a biblical answer. Not your opinion, but what the Word of God says. The book was to be his source of meditation day and night. We're not to meditate like TM or... Mm, that's not what it's talking Not the new age. But on the word of God, Lord, what do you mean here in verse 1? Psalm 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 3. Or, Lord, teach me what this means for me. And, and to let the Lord speak to your heart. Meditate on the word of God. The book was to be observed and obeyed according to all that was written in it. You can't just select what you want. You can't say, well, I don't believe the Old Testament because that's a God of wrath and the New Testament God of love. That's, that's, that's dumb. Genesis to Revelation is the Bible. You can't pick and choose. It's the whole counsel of God as we're going to see. And the book would make its way prosperous and have good success. Not financially. All the heretic teachers that are teaching that if you give God one, he's going to give you $10. Or if you plant your seed faith, then you're going to be wealthy. The Bible tells them they're liars. And they're manipulating you. Anybody presses you for money, get up and walk out. They take a Sunday offering, nonchalant, as the Lord says to it. And the people of God give with their heart, fine. But anybody presses you, give you a sad story, or tries to sell you a program... Get up and walk out. God is not broke. He owns a cattle on every hill. 
There's no strike in heaven. There's no stock market in heaven. He pays the, the streets of heaven, the New Jerusalem of gold. What we live to die for, he says, yeah, it's just now, it's just the streets. No big deal. Wow. When you look to the captivity, when they came back in the book of Nehemiah, God had Nehemiah teach the people God's word because they had gone into captivity because they disobeyed God's word. And they had lost their original language, so they were there teaching and interpreting them. And it's neat there in verse 8 of chapter 8 of Nehemiah, it says, And they read the book and the law of God distinctly, and they gave the sense, and they caused them to understand and read the reading. So there's a great, a great definition of expository preaching what I do every Sunday and during the week. I tell you what it says when we read it. Then we look into see what does it mean interpreting it, and then we make application. That's what the Word of God is for, ladies and gentlemen. Scripture interprets Scripture. We're not here to dialogue. We're not here to give our opinions. And so the emergent church says you cannot learn any objective truth from the Bible, so they just don't want to fight over doctrine. They can't be judgmental and, and, and very dogmatic about anything. Then get out of the pulpit. In fact, get out of the church. Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. That's a symbol of death. That's a symbol for brave people, not cowards. We have to look at the scriptures for what it is, ladies and gentlemen. The word of God. Paul again told the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 27 and 28 that um, he, had, he was innocent of the blood of any man. And I'm being very emphatic today and I repeat that because it's so important. I am... I am innocent of the blood of any person who's ever come to this church. Because when you come, I teach you the word of God and I warn you about deception. Very, very important. And also that he declared the whole counsel of God. And that's what we do. Genesis to Revelation. It takes some time, but we do it. Paul told Timothy to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season. In 2 Timothy 4, 2 through 4. So you're to be ready to answer anybody who asks you about God, sin, or the devil, or whatever it is. And you're to be able to say, well, the Bible says this. In fact, it goes on to say, to convince, to rebuke, to exhort. That's what the Word of God is useful for. How? With all long-suffering and teaching. Why? Because time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Those are believers. Non-believers don't have the truth. You might have been religious like I was before in my own way, but I, I didn't know the truth. These are people that know the truth and they turn away. If you cannot be deceived as a Christian, then why write the New Testament? There's no need for it, right? John could have said, instead of writing First John, oh, don't worry about it, they're eternally secure. They can't be deceived. But he didn't. He wrote and warned them, be careful, lest you be deceived. You know, in an examination at a Christian school, the teacher asked um, the following question. What is false doctrine? Up went a little boy's hand, and there came the answer. Listen carefully, quote, it's when... The doctor gives the wrong stuff to people who are sick. <laughs> Although the little boy had obviously confused doctrine with doctoring, he arrived at the correct definition. A lot of pastors and their teachings just make people sick spiritually. Because they're teaching bad stuff, wrong stuff. People say there's revival coming. Yeah, it's already here. A false doctrine. The greatest danger is inside the church, not outside the church. False prophets, false teachers. Read Second Peter chapter 2. They will have great followings. The guy on TV, Olsen, is it or whatever? Blinky. Um, do you know what accountability that is? That stadium? What, 80 or 90,000? And, and he's not preaching the gospel. God will hold him responsible for every soul that's in there. Can you imagine if he said, you must be born again or you'll never enter the kingdom of God. You must repent of your sins and there's only forgiveness in the name and the blood of Jesus Christ. Wow. 
God will hold him accountable. We believe in teaching you the full counsel of God from Genesis to Revelation, even as Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 27. So we can say to you that we have not shunned to declare to you the full counsel of God. We believe that from the beginning, when you're born again, we have a new believer's study that we teach. Even as First uh, Peter 2, 1 through 3 says, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desiring the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted the Lord is gracious. You bring a baby home, you feed him. It's hungry, wants to feed. It feeds, it grows, it develops, it matures, and pretty soon it's just rolling around, pretty soon it's crawling around, pretty soon it's running around. So we take you into a new believer study, and for three months we have a course set. You know, you'll know why you have to be saved. Where does sin come from? The importance of the Word of God, the importance of prayer, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, worship, witnessing, so that you are grounded. That course has been taught every three months, four times a year, for 36 years. When I'm teaching the midweek, new believer class is going on. So you're already used to coming. When you get done with your three months, you jump right into the in-depth study. Now, if we cannot learn any objective truth, what has been happening for 36 years? Of course we can. That's why we're called to teach. That's why it says obey. We believe in teaching in depth. In 2 Timothy 1, 13-40, it says, Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have found or heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus, that good things which was committed to you keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And so we Trust the Lord to do that work in us. And we teach in depth. We take that time. We just finished Ephesians. This is the third time I've done it in depth. 68 studies in those six little chapters. That's in depth. So different levels of feeding. So you can grow. You can mature. We believe this. We believe that all leadership must be taught from God's word. In 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 7, it says, As I urge you when I was, went into Macedonia, um, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables or endless genealogies, which cause dispute rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Now, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart. So in other words, the reason you're stopping these guys, you don't let them teach, is not because you hate them, it's because you love the people of God. From a good conscience and from sincere faith, from which some, listen, some having strayed, those are believers, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. You as a parent, you warn your children as they're growing up not to hang out with certain people, to be careful of certain people. Do you do it because you hate other people or do you do it because you love your child? It's real simple. We believe that this is the only way to equip you to defend yourself from all the weird, false teaching and movements that come and go in our lifetime and in every generation. Ephesians four eleven through 14 says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, some pastor, teacher, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body in Christ, that until we all come into the unity of the faith. In the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man. Not sinless, not sinless, but mature, grown up. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we should no longer be children. Tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of man in the cunning craftiness, deceitful plotting. There are so many hucksters in the church deceiving people. So many people teaching things that are so ludicrous to the word of God. And people just follow them in groves. Many sat where you sit. 10, 15, 20 years being used of God. And some of them have been led astray and they're following deception. You see, you have to allow yourself to be deceived. No one can force you. You must yield to it. A woman cannot be seduced unless she yields to it. 
The same with deception. Calvary Chapel, Pasadena, believes God commands us to teach and to learn His Word. And that's what we do. Second, God communicates His authority by His Word. This church is not built on my authority. When I got hit on my Harley and I broke my neck and my right foot got all jacked up, I wasn't here for four and a half months. This church went on without me just fine. I'm not the head of the church. I'm not the key to this church. It's the word of God. Your elders stepped in. They did all the teaching and the church prospered and did well. We follow Jesus Christ, ladies and gentlemen. Many times people ask me about my testimony because they heard about my brother. And you have a book, you have a movie. Nope. I was a sinner just like you. Now, what do you want to know about God? (laughs) We love that fleshy, stinky stuff. You know what I mean? It's just kind of, yeah, you slobber all over you. That's not what it's about, ladies and gentlemen. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, God's Word tells us that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Listen to the scripture. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is proper for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The word inspiration simply means God breathed, literally expired from God. The amount of scripture is all. All means the 39 books of the Old Testament, the 27 of the New. All of them. Now, many have given up the inspiration and we'll deal with that as we move along. But the objective uh, benefit is notice. It's stated there, it is profitable for the perfecting of the saints. This word is going to mature you. This this word is going to make you more like Jesus Christ and less like you. The word doctrine, the daskalia, means the act or manner of teaching, referring to the content of truths taught for right learning. Content. Now, the emergent church, Driscoll and McLaren and all those guys say we cannot learn any objective truth. We cannot be sure of what's for sure. Really? Then why am I told to study? Why am I told that God will hold me responsible for it? The people in our nation not only have been dumbed down, but the church of Jesus Christ has been dumbed down. There are two parallels. The word is a key word in the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. 27 times. If God just mentioned it one time, we should pay attention to it. The word reproof means conviction. That's the next word. Not only by the charge, but by the manifestation of truth of that charge. Whether they acknowledge it outwardly, Or feel guilty inwardly. It is a court term. We have a responsibility to preach the word because God convicts people. I don't convict people. I just get people mad sometimes. The word of God convicts people. Sometimes you guys invite some people here, friends or family, and they think you talk to me about them because as I'm teaching, I'm saying some stuff, and they think you you ratted on them. I didn't say nothing. The word appears... Two times in this form. The other time is translated evidence in Hebrews 11.1. Then the word correction. It means, and it's made up of two words, a P upon an an ortho, which you get an orthopedic doctor. It makes crooked bones straight. They're broken. He puts them together. (laughs) Okay? In other words, the scriptures are useful for restoring an individual to an upright state. Literally, to stand Straight again, the word presupposes a fall or a deviation from God's word. Here's the plumb line. You deviate. This is the road. You go off to the left or the right. The plumb line is the word of God. Not Calvary Chapel, Pasadena. Not Xavier Rees. Not any man. It's the word of God. Then the word instruction. It means the whole train of a child, education, to cultivate his mind and morals 
to increase spiritual virtue. But not so much by words here, but by deeds appearing six times in the New Testament. It's translated mature one time, chastening four times, instruction one time. And so by word and deed, by example, that's how you teach your children, right? You tell them no, and then you show them what no. You tell them, do it this way, and then you show them. Then you say, try it. That's how we learn. The instruction is qualified in righteousness, that which is right and just. The righteousness of God is revealed in Jesus Christ, Paul says in Romans 1, 16 through 17. Nowhere else. The conformity is to a high authority, his authority, not ours. Jesus said, you have heard that it has been said. But Jesus never quoted anybody. He said, I say to you, whoa, Jackson. You didn't quote Rabbi, Akiba, or anybody. You've heard, I say to you, the ultimate authority. You open God's word, that's his word, that's his authority. You can accept it, you can reject it, and you will be blessed or you will be held accountable. One of the two. The whole goal of God and the plan of salvation is restoration and salvation, not castigation. God wants to bless you. God wants to forgive you. God wants to direct and guide your, our life, all of us. The ultimate goal is also stated that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work in verse 17. So the goal of the man of God, believers, is to be complete. A word used in arithmetic to signify the whole number to which nothing needs to be added in order to complete it. It appears only this time. So, as you get into the Word of God, and you walk with God, you're complete in Christ Jesus. In Him you're complete, and Him dwells the sum total of deity. Colossians 2, 9 and 10. No one else. The Word speaks of mutual and symmetrical adjustment to all that goes to make a man, a God, or a woman. You know, when you bring your child home, you strip them naked, you throw them on the bed there, and you're counting toes and looking at everything, and it's all fine. And then the next month, you're looking very closely to make sure his arms or her arms are growing symmetrically the same. Their legs, their body, their head. If one leg starts growing longer than the other, something's wrong. You're to be fully equipped. A lot of people are like, you know, they, all they do is study prophecy. And they never touch the doctrine or anything. Other people get into this. They're running around here and there and everything else. Perhaps you've seen people who um, go to the gym and uh, all they do is they work their upper arms and then they, you see them in shorts and you go, what the heck? <laughs> or just the reverse, right? When a guy goes to the gym, he works everything in proportion. He doesn't look like a freak, right? Same thing in the Word of God. No different. In other words, Paul is telling Timothy that if he wants to be a man of God, well-developed, he needs to be a man of the Word. You want to be a godly man and woman? Married or single? Then you get in the Word of God. You don't want to be godly? You don't have to do anything. It'll happen automatically. <laughs> automatically. You know, you walk over to my house and you see that I have a beautiful garden. You know, I put some time into it. I have to turn the dirt over, I have to clip it, spray it, everything else, and look after it, water it, and everything else. But if you just walk out and see weeds, you say, this sucker doesn't do anything. Because weeds come easy. Sin comes easy. Just don't do anything regarding your godliness. It'll take care of you all on its own. Wow. The goal for the man of God is also to be thoroughly equipped for every good work. He's not repeating himself. But the phrase here means to be outfitted, to be proficient and competent. And the word is used of a wagon for a rescue with all, the, all that's necessary for that rescue, for a document totally finished off in the lawyer. So in other words, you are set as you're in the word of God. It equips you for life to be a parent, to be a husband, to be a wife, to minister to others, to give them the answers. Wow. 
And by the way, don't be afraid when someone asks you something. You say, you know what? I don't know. You don't know? I don't know. I don't know everything, but I'll, I'll find out. I'll get back to you. Give me your number. So the double descriptive phrase here in our text is not redundant. But it gives the text a greater force of importance as well as sufficiency of the word preparing the man and the woman. Stop and think of your life if you're honest and if you're walking with God and if you've been growing with God. Look how far God has brought you from when he first saved you. Look how much he's done for you as a husband, as a wife, as a son, a daughter. Just as a Christian, all he's done for you. And if you would take all those years and you eliminate God from those years, where would you be? I don't even, I don't, I don't even want to think about it. Because that's what you do when you're religious, right? I used to drive down the streets of Ballon Park just cruising, wasting my life. And I would drive down Ballon Park Boulevard and you would cross St. John's Church on the left-hand side and I'd be drinking. And I'd, I'd stop, pass the church, I'd cross myself, then I'd pass it. I'd chuckle, look, i go. It doesn't, you know. I was religious. It didn't change me. No big deal. But then, then I met Jesus and he messed my life up for good. What a change it's made, first in me, then in the small way that I've affected others. And the same with you. God's goodness, God's goodness. God spoke in different manners and throughout the time in his word. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 and 2 says, God who at various times and in various manners spoken in times past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son who he has appointed heir of all things to whom he made the world. So the various times means the many portions of books. In other words, God spoke through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, so on and so forth. No one book had all the message. The Old Testament was progressive, small parts. And then the New Testament, Jesus is the fulfillment of that. But the Bible is Genesis to Revelation. There's an axiom in geometry. I remember sitting in class of geometry. I said, what the heck am I going to use this stuff? But... There's an axiom that says that no part is greater than the whole and the whole is equal to some of its parts. I still remember. That's exactly what the Bible says. No part, no one book is greater than the whole and the whole is equal to some of its parts. Jesus is the fulfillment of it, man. Incredible. Various ways, different manners, methods, dreams, visions, miracles, signs, wonders, theophanies. He spoke in different manners, giving another portion. The various channels, the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the prophets of old, the prophets of the New Testament. Ultimately, lastly, the only one that he speaks through now is his son, Jesus Christ. We're going to focus on that tonight, the centrality of Jesus. When people tell you that they can be Christians without coming to Jesus, they're liars. They may be sincere, but they're sincere liars. They're deceived. The Bible says Jesus Christ is the only way. Now, our nation is pressuring us as Christian church to modify that, to water that down, to not make judgments. We will not make that compromise. We will not water it down. It's an insult to the martyrs of the saints who were burned alive at the stake, those who have been massacred in history past, and we will not bow to man. We will serve anybody and everybody, but we will bow to no one except Jesus Christ. It's very, very important you understand that. Everybody's just cowering to everything of the day. God help us. God came upon men, moved them with the Holy Spirit to speak. In Second Peter chapter 1, verse 20 through 21, it says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The word there, uh, private interpretation, is a bad translation. It literally means that um, prophecy did not come of the source, origin, or impulse of men. In other words, Peter didn't say, I'm going to get up, I'm going to write a book today. The Holy Spirit came upon him and carried him. And the revelation, as we've seen in Second Timothy 3, 6 and 7, came from God. So that when they wrote these things down, they were inerrant and infallible. For the second part tells you that 
they spoke by the, not by the will of man, but as they were born or carried along by the Spirit of God. Now, the majority of the churches today, the major denominations, have already abandoned this doctrine. They do not believe the Bible is inerrant and infallible. They believe there's errors in it. Fuller Seminary has given that up a long time ago. We believe every word is from God. We believe that we are going to be accountable for everything. We believe there are no errors in the original autographs. You may have a distinction between one letter of one word or something, but that doesn't change the sense. We understand it. And so the testimony of Jesus was that he is the spirit of prophecy, Revelation 19.10 says. He's the red thread, Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman, all the way through. Jesus says, you search the scriptures for in them, you think you have eternal life. And they are they that speak of me. They testify of me in John 5.39. These men, the Holy Spirit came upon them, they spoke. The New Testament is on the same level as the Old Testament. Peter accepted Paul's writings as scripture already in 2 Peter 3.15 and 16. In 1 Timothy 5.18 it quotes Deuteronomy 25.4 and Luke 10.7 and puts them together. Scripture. Scripture. Jesus himself told his disciples when the Holy Spirit comes, he will teach you things to come. He will show you. He will open up your understanding to my word. The Holy Spirit is a silent witness of Jesus. He never speaks of himself. He doesn't draw attention to himself. He's the silent witness of Jesus. You know, the prophets of old, there was a test to be a prophet of God. It was this. You had to be 100% accurate every time. And if you weren't, they could stone you to death. And I don't see any of the prophets today claiming that. <laughs> As they give off these self-appointed prophecies that mean absolutely nothing but just manipulate and merchandise people. Amazing to me. How many of you guys remember that red moon, red blood moon stuff? Oh, the whole Christian community. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Pastor Rex. What, what, what day they say it's going to happen? All right. Go to your calendar, put their false prophet. You watch when it comes. It won't happen. Mark them as false prophet. We run after this cotton candy stuff. All over this stuff. You have the word of God. The authority needed to be established is God's authority, not man's. Jesus said, And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Wow. For he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes, Matthew seven twenty nine. Again, he quoted nobody. I say to you. But also that the authority of God's word may have free course to refine me in my life. To refine you. The word is a sharp edged sword. Hebrews 4.12. Piercing the sun, the soul and the spirit. With the sun of the intent of the thoughts of the heart. And so as you're sitting and you're reading. Whether it be at home or here at church. And God nails you. God just deals with you. I could be in Leviticus. I could be in Deuteronomy. I could be in Philemon. It doesn't matter. If you came to hear God speak to you. He's going to speak to you. You may not like what he tells you, but he's going to speak to you. And then it's up to you what you do with it. See, I'm only responsible for the proclamation. I'm not responsible for your response. That, that ends right here. I pray for you. We pray for you all the time, every one of you. As a church that come here. And we pray that we be faithful to the word and that you would be faithful to obey and that God would continue to use us. But you're the only one that can do that. Not I. The soul, the spirit, the body. The soul is your intellect, emotion, and will. The spirit is the real you. You've been made alive. Your body is simply the temple of God. When you were in the world and I was in the world, this body was just used for whatever I wanted to. My spirit was dead. I might have been religious, moral, whatever, whoever you were, but that, that doesn't make you a Christian. Okay? And then you became born again, and now you're turned right side up. Now your spirit's alive. So now your intellect, your emotions, and your will is subject to the Spirit of God. 
no longer to your sinful nature to just use your body the way you want. Now you honor God in your body because it's the temple of God. Which is an interesting concept because all these different movements that come in as false movements, they always cater to your flesh. The postmodern movement, the emergent church, they say it from the pulpit. I'm not, I'm not saying anything they don't say. They say that they have beer bashes with their elders. They cuss from the pulpit. Because they want to just show the people in the world that they're just like them. Really? Jesus says, don't be like them. If the leaders and the elders are having beer bashes and they're cussing from the pulpit, what in the world's happening in the pew? How are you going to tell your kids not to do what you do? Nothing good ever came in, out of my life with alcohol. Not one thing. Not one thing. Why would you even want to go there? That we even have that discussion today is, is an insult to God or anything else. But see, that's a Gnostic philosophy. First John was written to the Gnostics. They said material's evil, spirit's good. So you can live in this material body and worship God in spirit. And it doesn't matter what you do in the body. It's okay. They're two separate things. Really? Wow. Something new? No. An old lie in a new package. Same thing. God's authority commands us to put on the mind of Christ, that servant, in Philippians 2, 5. Let his mind be in you, which is in Christ Jesus' servant. Humble himself unto death. So a name was given to him above every other name. That's to be... Our example, renewed in the spirit of our mind, Ephesians 4.23 says, you do that through the word of God, yielding to the spirit of God, presenting a body, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable God, which is a reasonable service. Not being fashioned to the world system, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind to prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. God doesn't want you to be like the world. The culture wants to pressure you. The world says, oh, you don't want to make judgments. It's okay. It doesn't matter, you know. You know, I, I mean, you know what? They're up, they're up to about 20-some categories about sexuality now. It's not just heterosexual, bisexual, um, homosexual. I mean, they've got all these categories. Are you kidding me? God said I made the male and female. We pervert, we twist, we corrupt. And no nation can sustain it. It will collapse. God's authority keeps us from being tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. Mature saints, doctrines of devils, 1 Timothy 4.1, the Spirit expressly says, In the last days, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to demons and doctrines of devils. Wow. Jesus said, You make a mistake not knowing the scripture of the power of God to the Pharisees in Matthew 22. 29, when they were asking about marriage, this woman had, you know, her brother and this and that, and, you know, and they died without children. Whose wife is she going to be? You don't know the power of God or the scriptures. And in, in the resurrection, we're not going to be married, so people get bummed down. Have you had fun here making married? Good. What's heaven going to be like? Better. Simple better. But we're not going to have to be married. But don't get bummed out about it. Have a good time while you're here. Married. When we get there, it's going to be a whole different thing. Better. Not because we're not married, but just better. <laughs> As natural brute beasts, they speak evil of the things they don't understand. Second Peter 2.13. I'm amazed at what some people say. Blasphemous. Like God doesn't smoke them right on the spot. They twist... The scriptures to their own destruction, Second Peter 3.16 tells us. They pervert the gospel, Paul says in Galatians 1, 6 through 9. He tells the Galatians, listen, if we, apostles, or an angel from heaven, preach to you any other gospel, heteros, we get the word heterosexual from, male, female, different. Any other heteros gospel, then we have preached to you, let them be anathema. The strongest word, damnation in the Greek, he says it twice. You think God is concerned about doctrine? Well, if he's concerned about doctrine, that means one must be able to understand and learn some truth, right? Therefore, we're responsible. So how can the postmodern emergent church says that we're not to make judgment? We can't be sure about God's word. Really? Wow. Calvary Child Pasadena believes that God communicates his authority by his word. This church is built on Jesus Christ. 
Nothing but Jesus Christ. All of us are sinners saved by grace. Thirdly, God cares that we know what is doctrine. How? By his word. That is the measure. That is the standard. The meaning of the word doctrine, there's two words that are used in the Greek New Testament, with the exception of one word in Hebrews 6.1. But the first word, the daskolia, 21 times, it means instruction or teaching. 15 of the 21 times that it occurs, it's found in the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. The second word, dedike, is found 31 times, and it means the act of teaching or the content of what is taught. Objective truth. God's word is not subjective. You just can't make it mean what you want it to mean. And we're going to go into a little bit how you understand that. It's objective truth. When you tell your son or your daughter, I don't want you to go to Johnny's house. You know what you mean. And he knows what you mean. And if he goes to Johnny's house and you say, why did you go to Johnny's house? And he says, well, Johnny today may be Susie. I don't know. You know what you do? You smack him because you know he can understand, right? People play their games today with these semantics, with this subjectivism. It's a bad game they play. The way one knows what is doctrine is that it is always based on the scripture's revelation of truth. God tells us the truth about God, man, sin, salvation, the creation, the second coming, the first coming, the millennial kingdom, what's going to happen to Satan, battles, people, names, 150 years before his birth, Cyrus, my anointed. He's going to conquer Babylon. He's going to do it by the levee gates going under them. Try telling me something before it happens so when it happens, I can declare you God. Amazing to me. And people have the nerve to say, well, that's just a book like any other. Go away. There's not one person in hell this afternoon that believes that. Every person in hell right now knows this is the word of God. And they know they could have gone to heaven and they chose not to. You understand what I'm saying? Doctrine is not dogma, which man's statements of religion and they substitute their creed for the word of God. Good example of the dogma is like I came out of the Catholic Church, so that they say that Mary's a perpetual virgin. Well, the Bible says no; she married um, Joseph, and then after Jesus was born, then he, she had other kids with him. Okay, so they make this this dogma that is not biblical; it's contrary to the Bible, and they exalt it higher than the authority of the Bible. Or like Peter, Peter was the first pope. Listen, if Peter was the first pope, then Peter would have had to been at least. 350 years old. Because the Catholic Church did not begin until 312 when Constantine married the church to the world. Those are dogmas that contradict the word of God and they're put on a higher level than God and you have to look at the scripture and compare it. If you, if you walk in a room and I give you a ruler 12 inches per foot and I ask you to measure this auditorium and you measure it out, you're going to give me an accurate measurement. If you come in with your own ruler and it's only 11 inches per foot, as sincere as you want to be, you're going to give me wrong measurement because you've got the wrong plumb line. Simple. Doctrine, therefore, is God's instructions and teaching by his revelation to man about the truth of the things of God, man, sin, redemption, the world, whatever. Why do we need doctrine? Some people say, let's just love one another. Because we love one another, I'm going to want to love you more the way I want to love you than the Bible tells you, okay? Just that simple. We corrupt it. Love without doctrine becomes corrupted. Real simple. Let me give you two reasons. Because there is no knowledge of God in us, we always distort things. 
Everybody has an opinion. And second of all, because passion will always triumph where there's no godly fear. If you don't have godly fear, you know the things you would do. All of us. It's just that simple. And if I'm not restrained by the word of God, by the spirit of God, by the love of God, you wouldn't want to be around me. Nor are you. We are bad to the bone. Our only thankfulness is that Christ lives in us, the hope of glory, ladies and gentlemen. The greatest place in the world is where you're at right now in the church. It's the greatest place in the world. <laughs> I just can't. It's God's so good to his people. It's amazing. They continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. It says Acts 2.42, the apostles' teaching. They gave an answer to every man for the reason of the hope that lies in with meekness and fear. First Peter three fifteen. Let me give you a simple way, a simple way for you to test doctrine. First, it would not be a new revelation found by you because you're so smart. Okay, be careful. The person always says, "Well, you know, I found something new." Nothing new. Second of all, too often it's based upon partial truths, or often it's the result of a text out of context. So you read into it whatever you want. Too often it brings glory and attention to the preacher, to the man, and not Jesus Christ. Everybody has their eyes on the man. It isn't stacking the collection of scriptures together to teach what you believe the Bible says or teaches. It's a form of dishonesty when people do that. So you grab a collection of scriptures out of context and you stack them up and you can make it say whatever you want. It's a form of deception. It's a form of intellectual cleverness. There's a lot of clever people around. It is determined by asking yourself certain questions. Real simple and easy. When you hear something. Did Jesus teach it? Do you find it in the Gospels? Second, is it bound, found in the book of Acts? The book of Acts is the only historical church document we have. I don't go to church history to verify the Bible. Church history is, uh, is, is all messed up. So did Jesus teach it? Is it taught in the book of Acts? And third, is it taught in the epistles? If it is, then without doubt it's doctrine. Absolutely. It should be based upon a big word, hermeneutical, biblical interpretation. It's like a triangle, general hermeneutics. On the bottom you have context. On one side you have uh, the language, whether it be Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic. And the other one you have culture. In other words, each of these books, each of these letters were written to a set person or church for a set purpose and at a set time. So once we can find out what it meant to them in that day, then we can make an application to how it means in our day. Okay, An example is the Corinthian epistle. The Corinthian epistle, Paul tells the uh, ladies, ladies, put your veil on your head. Why? Because they had temple of Aphrodite. Temple of Aphrodite, they were nothing but just higher prostitutes, okay? And they would come back at the, at the, in the evening. They would let their hair down, take their veil off. The veil was a symbol of, I'm married. I have a covering. And they would sell their goodies. And Paul is saying to the ladies, ladies, honor your head, your husband. If you don't have a veil on, they're going to approach you, think that you're one of the Aphrodite's prostitutes. Now, if we had a temple of Aphrodite here, I would tell you, ladies, wear a veil when you come. But since we don't have it, you don't have to. But you still have to honor your husband, right? How do you do that, ladies? The way you talk, the way you dress, the way you conduct yourself, right? Simple, in principle. But first I have to find out what it meant to the people of that day. Why did he say what he said, right? So we read the text, what does it say? We interpret the text, what does it mean? And then we make application to it. It changes, transforms our life. It gives God the glory completely. Now, it should be based upon this hermeneutical principle. So the text has to be in context, first of all. That which precedes that which is followed. So don't just read one verse. What has been said before and what follows? What's the connection of the section? Then relate what is written to them with that historical background. Like I said, the temple of Aphrodite. Without that, we wouldn't know. And then relate the accurate exegesis, the interpretation, again, with the original language in that, 
and then make sure that that book is teaching a certain subject. How does it fit within the book? And then how does it fit within the whole of the Bible? If you believe that it's saying something that contradicts the rest of the Bible, other portions of the Bible, my interpretation is wrong. Because God's not the author of confusion. And so these things will keep us from making foolish errors. I mean, I'm amazed. How do people come up and teach you that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy if they don't stack up the scriptures and ignore the majority of scriptures? The only way you can do that. You're selective. For the most simple and obvious understanding is usually the correct one. So if the text makes sense, do not make the text say nonsense. John Wesley used to say, and I agree with him. Jesus came and spoke to common people, you and I. Monosyllabic, one syllable word, the Bible. A child can understand it. A serious error in doctrine is compared to a missile that is shot off, right? Now, if it's one, just a little degree off here, and it's shot, and there's a target out there, the farther the target is, the more it's going to deviate, right? To the point where it'll never even be close to its target. Well, so with false doctrine, at first, well, it's not that bad. I mean, there's still, but you keep traversing that projection, and it gets pretty serious. Then people are teaching worse things. You know how sin nature is. We all started out doing something stupid, stealing a candy bar or whatever. And it progressed to stealing cars or breaking in homes, right? We began saying a dirty word, then we became dirty people, right? Nothing stays static, right? But God can transform us, God can change us. And now, now we have that standard by the word of God. He calls us brothers and sisters, we're in the same family. Why? Because all of us, all of us came by the same, by the grace of God. We all were lost completely. So the believers to hold fast pattern the sound words, Second Timothy one thirteen. We're responsible for that. Be consistent, not corrupting it. The believers that take heed to himself unto the doctrine and continue in them, first Timothy four sixteen. Why? Because you will save yourself and those who hear you. Abiding. Don't just tell me you've gone to an altar call at Raul Reese's uh, crusade or, or Greg Glory's crusade. Are you walking? Do you know the Lord? Do you obey him? Does he speak to you? Does he take you out in the woodshed and give you a good one once in a while? Then you're a child of God. The believers to pass to others what has been given to them in Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2.2. It's a great privilege to receive. But then we have to give out to others. The faithful word has been taught has to be given. Titus 1.9. You know, we're to contend for the faith that was given once and for all to the saints. Jude verse 3. Nothing new. It's the same old gospel. The same old gospel. Nothing new. It's a corruption. So Calvary Child Pasadena believes that God cares for that we know what is doctrine by his word. That's how we know. That's why he gives us the standard of his word. So the priority of the Word of God is the priority of Calvary Chapel Pasadena. For if we don't use the Scriptures to learn about God, man, sin, or angels, or whatever it is, then we're left to our own ignorance and conjecture, which can only result in inferior corrupt knowledge about God, man, sin, redemption, creation, and anything else, because it's based on human intelligence and reason alone. And not God's revelation. Let me give you the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's not asking if you believe him. He's just telling you what he did. If you have no problem with God creating everything out of nothing, you've got the Bible licked. Nothing else should be a problem. Do you believe that? Then he can create a new creation out of you. He can give you a new heart, a new spirit, a new nature. He can restore your marriage. He can transform your mind. 
He can do for you what you can never, ever, ever do for yourself. Wow. The Word. Powerful. Calvary Chapel, Pasadena believes God commands to teach and learn the Word. His Word. Calvary Chapel, Pasadena believes that God communicates His authority by His Word. Not ours, His. And Calvary Chapel, Pasadena believes that God cares that we know what is doctrine by His Word. Not our opinion. And so may we continue. 36 more years if he tarries. Hope not. I hope he comes before next Monday. That'd be good. Lord, thank you for your loving goodness. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. Thank you for your goodness towards us, Lord. Thank you for every person here. What a, what a loving God you are to us, Lord. Just to go out of your way to save us, to just encourage us to grow and depend upon you. So I lift everybody to you, Lord. If there's anyone here who doesn't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then we encourage you to repent of your sins. I need to say nothing else. Jesus is the one who died for you. He paid the price of your sin. He loves you. And he's offering you salvation, forgiveness of your sins, to change and transform your life. Only you can make that decision. You have all the right to not go to heaven. You can choose hell, but you don't have to go there. You can become a child of God by grace through faith, through the prayer of repentance. If this is your desire, over the internet or here, this is your prayer to him, and he's going to save you right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.